Welcome to the Crisis Podcast. My name is Travis Atkinson, and I am your host. Join me as we discover the people behind the services and systems that treat and care for people experiencing a mental health crisis. Welcome to the Crisis Podcast. I am so glad you're here. This is Travis Atkinson, your host. In each episode, I am digging into the nuts and bolts of behavioral health crisis services in the United States, and I do that by interviewing the people that work in and around these crisis systems. In this episode, I interview Dr. Bart Andrews. Bart is the Vice President of Telehealth and Home and Community Services at Behavioral Health Response in St. Louis, Missouri. BHR operates Youth Connection Helplines, Crisis Hotlines, and Mobile Outreach Services for St. Louis and many surrounding counties. Bart also serves on the board of the American Association of Suicidology and is a past president of the National Association of Crisis Organization Directors. He is an assist trainer, a public speaker, and a suicide attempt survivor. I thoroughly enjoyed my interview with Bart. We talked about his foray into crisis hotline work and how he found his calling in this crisis field, how crisis call center workers are underrated in their clinical skills, and how behavioral health providers should get paid well for being good at their jobs. We talk about Bart's contributions to organizations like AAS and NASCOD, and Bart's favorite speakers, and the importance of his relationship with his three dogs. I hope I didn't give too much away, but I have a hunch you'll love this conversation as much as I did. Here is episode three of the Crisis Podcast, Bart Andrews. Bart Andrews, welcome to the Crisis Podcast. Uh, thank you for having me on the show, Travis. I'm really excited to be here. Good. Uh, so, Bart, I know many things about you. I don't say that in a, a dubious way. Other people that are listening to the cast might know less. So I would like to know, what do you do for a job and why, why do you do that? Great question, Travis. I, I started in crisis intervention quite by accident, really sort of out of duress. Um, I was finished with my doctoral internship. My uh, doctoral internship was coming to a close. There were a, a few weeks left. Uh, my wife, and I think there's, a, the, during my doctoral internship is when, uh, uh, the second time I entered treatment uh, for drug and alcohol addiction. And so I was very early in my recovery. Um, that year of my doctoral internship had been quite uh, intense. And uh, it was a really tough year in Tennessee, and there was a point when my internship was ending and my wife called a family meeting, um, which was really weird because we'd never had a family meeting before, uh, and I was curious what happened at a family meeting, so I showed up, and we sat in the, the dining room. Uh, this, uh, this, we had this beautiful duplex in Murfreesboro, Tennessee that was a great space to live, very good light, and she started to ask me questions. Now, what's really interesting about this, Travis, is my wife is a kindergarten teacher, but she should have been an, an attorney. A good attorney <laughs> will tell you, you don't 
ask questions you don't already think you know the answer to. Mm. Right? Attorneys don't ask questions and, well, let's see what happens. They, they, they have an agenda. They think they know the answer. So she took me through a great cross-examination where it was like, okay, so uh, Bart called this meeting to kind of find out where you at on your dissertation. And I said... Oh, great, great question, Stephanie. I said, I, I really have narrowed it down to a couple of ideas. I think I know what I'm doing. I feel really good about it. And she said, okay. She said, uh, have you written anything? I said, no. She said, have you talked to your dissertation chair about these ideas? Have you gotten an agreement that this is the topic you're going to work on? And I said, well, I haven't gotten, I mean, that's, those are good questions, but I'm not that far yet, but I've got, I feel really good about where this next question she said, what's, uh, what's next after this internship? What, do, what, are, what are your plans? And I said, well, I was thinking about a postdoc, uh, you know, something. I wanted to go someplace warm, Travis. I wanted out of the Midwest. And, yeah. You know, I wanted Sunbelt, California, Arizona, Florida. So, like, there's – then I wanted something sexy, neuropsychology, um, behavioral medicine. So I was like – I mentioned this postdoc in San Diego. It was a neuropsych postdoc and – a behavioral medicine postdoc in Miami that I had looked at. And she's like, that's great. She goes, well, a couple of things, the deadlines to apply for those are passed. So I'm just curious where you're at with those applications. Did you turn those in? I'm like, well, <laughs> no, I mean, we're not, I, I, I'm just thinking about these would be good things maybe next year for postdoc. She said, okay. She said, let me tell you what I'm doing. Now this was really interesting because it, there was a, a pronoun shift, um, as opposed to we, it was an I. Uh, Stephanie had given up her job teaching in the same district that her mom and her grandma taught in to follow me around to graduate school and my doctoral internship. And she said, well, I, I've taken my job back in Arnold, Missouri. I've got a job. And she said, uh, I've also got a house. And she You're married at this point? Yes. Okay. <laughs> people ask that. It's really interesting that you say that, Travis. People people ask that question a lot. They also then, the next follow-up question to that is, are you still married? <laughs> the, the answer to both those questions is yes, interestingly enough. Now, those listeners, you may think there were some trust issues in the relationship at this point. Um, debatable. I think there's pros and cons to the level of trust at that moment. And she said, if you want to live with me, you need to have a job. And she said... And it's a job where people pay you actual money for the work that you do, not internships, not residencies. People's, people are going to pay you real money, and it's got to have benefits. It's got to have insurance. You have to have a real job, Bart. And so I did what any confident, educated young professional would do. I called my mom because it dawned on me that I was about to be unemployed and homeless very soon. And so my mom, uh, who is a psychiatric nurse uh, for, oh my God, till she retired, she had a friend at the hospital that had just finished his master's degree and started working at a place called Behavioral Health Response. And she said, they're hiring. I said, what is it? She said, that's a crisis line. And so I called BHR uh, and uh, set up an interview, drove up for the interview, was hired on the spot. And uh, started at BHR two weeks later, uh, the weekend after my doctoral internship ended, working evenings and weekends on a crisis hotline. 
I had no, prior to this, no interest in crisis line work. In fact, in graduate school, there were a couple of students that worked at the local crisis line. And they're like, you really should do this. And it's good experience. And I'm like, are they paying you? And they're like, no. And I'm like, I don't do <laughs> um, So uh, I had no idea what crisis lines did. And, uh, and I started working at BHR evenings and weekends. Um, brought home my W-2s, right? Um, For your wife to see. I, to yeah, prove that I, you had the, a job. I had paperwork that, hey, okay. look, I, I, got, I, got, I got a job, Stephanie. And it was really interesting because it was just complete happenstance. It was, it was not a choice. It wasn't a career path. It was just this thing that kind of happened. And I fell in love with it. I absolutely, absolutely fell in love with crisis intervention, taking phone calls. And I had done, at this point in my career, I had been working in mental health for you know seven years at this point. And I had been on inpatient units. I had supervised a, a family therapy team. I'd done major, I'd been doing a major full psychological assessments for years. I had um, done child therapy, adult therapy, um, substance use work, all of it. I had thousands and thousands of hours of, of clinical practice at that point. And nothing prepared me for working on the crisis line. The things that were shocking to me is how many people were having thoughts of suicide. In clinical practice, and I did a, I had done so much therapy by this point. I had a few clients that had genuine suicide crises, but it was a small fraction of the number of clients that I had seen. And on the crisis line, right off the bat, it was clear that several things were going on. One, probably more of my clients that I was seeing were struggling with suicide than I knew about. Two, I was grossly unprepared to work with people at risk of suicide. And three people really wanted to help. And the crisis line was magical because people didn't need to go anywhere. They didn't need to disclose who they were. Nobody needed to know they were getting help other than you and them. And it was really clear to me that the number of people who need help compared to the number of people who actually make it to a therapist's office, it's a, it's a small fraction of folks. There are so many barriers. Payment worried about being known, uh, transportation, crisis line, all they needed was a phone and they could call and they could get help. And it was absolutely incredible how every shift I had, no matter what kind of day I was having or what was going on, there were numerous people who needed help and I was able to help them in a way that they wanted, in a place, in a manner that worked for them, that was free for them, didn't cost them anything. And I became, I was addicted to it, right? Uh, work on the crisis lines and being there, answering that phone, knowing that I'm going to figure out a way to help. And every call is different. Sure, they fall in the categories and you can kind of, there's trends. But you had to be prepared for everything and anything. You also, the most powerful thing about working on a crisis line is it reinforces for you as the clinician, the helper, whatever you want to call yourself, how limited your power actually is and how much of a help you can give a person is dependent on their willingness to let you help them, your trust in them, and building that trust and honoring that they're the ones with the power. And that was, that was incredibly humbling and also empowering at the same time. You also had to learn to live with uncertainty. When I first started working at BHR, we had caller ID, but it wasn't as good as it is now. There were lots of people calling from blocked lines, uh, and sometimes you couldn't find people. 
we had some lines that were, you had no identifying information. There was no way to find people at all. So you really had to live with a lot of uncertainty about the outcome of the work you were doing. And some people can do that and some people can't. In fact, one of the biggest challenges with crisis work is that you've got to be able to be there, be present, be helpful, and be willing to let it ride because you don't, you're not going to have a whole lot of control over what happens at the end of that phone call. And it turned out that I really liked that a lot. So that was, that was an incredible experience for me. Uh, and it, having no intention of entering crisis work, um, those of us that do crisis work, and I don't, it's, I don't want to be clicky about this, but there's crisis people and there's everybody else, right? <laughs> um, there are some folks that, that, that come into crisis work and they do it and they're like, okay, they move on. And then there's people that are crisis workers. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we're a, a really um, a incredibly amazing tribe of people. And when you find your people, so to speak, which I did in crisis work, it was absolutely uh, incredible to me uh, how uh, empowering it was. And also, I think another part of this was that we should be selfish as helpers. We should do things that reward us. And the idea that helping people made me feel better, um, helped me with my own challenges that I was facing, there was a point in my life when I would have said that that's problematic for a, a professional. I think that's ridiculous. Uh, we should do things that energize us, empower us, that make our lives better. And, and crisis intervention was that thing for me, Travis. It really was where all the things I'd been training for, here was this thing I didn't even know much about or that I would ever do. And it was like I was built for it. And everything that I'd been doing for years was preparing me for this thing. Like I, I am, as part of my recovery, there, uh, there's a spiritual component to my recovery, not in a formal sense. But, but for me, and there's more details around how I ended up at BHR, that were, it was really one of these God things, right? Where just everything kind of clicked. Uh, and being a BHR, everything clicked for me, and I just kind of found a home. And I, at that point in my life, I desperately needed a home. So many awesome things that you said there, and I want to unpack a, a couple of them a little bit more. Uh, I mean, first of all, you, it sounded like when you uh, you talked about your tribe and about your crisis people, it sounds like you found a real sense of belonging. Brene Brown talks about that a lot, about finding, uh, you know, this place where you can uh, feel connected or that you're not alone in the world. And uh, I think we all experience that more than we care to admit. But, but another thing that stuck with me is you talked about almost this like being in your blood or giving, giving you a high is that I imagine as a helper, when you're on the call lines, there's nothing to hide behind there. You, you can't, it doesn't matter if you're a, a PhD or a, a person with lived experience or a bachelor's degree or whatever. And it doesn't matter what you have accomplished up to that point. It's you and the person and a phone line. And you have, you, you have so much that's working against you when you talk about things like nonverbals or, or empathy, and you just only have, this jaw that sits between your ears and the, and the brain that sits between your ears to uh, make a connection. I think of, um, I don't know, I think of scenes where somebody's dismantling a bomb in it, you know, like a, a Nicolas Cage movie or something, and, they, and he gets it like one second beforehand. That probably provides a rush, but I also imagine it provides a deep sense of meaning into the work that you're doing. Th- th- those are all true. I mean, as I look back, I clearly was designed for this. When, when I was doing lots of outpatient therapy, I'd get behind on my notes. I hated the paperwork. 
and, and that sense of that ongoing burden of all of these things that you had to manage. The best thing about crisis line work was, although it was intense and scary at times, when you got done at the end of the day, you were done. Your paperwork was finished. You had to have everything documented. You know, everything was documented real time. Everything had to be done before you left for the day. And you were finished. So you had this incredible rush and you did all this work. And then when you, when you left, you, you were done. You were mm-hmm. finished. You didn't have any of this, anything hanging over your head, right? I like that. The hard part, and this is really, there's a couple of things that are hard for people who don't do uh, therapy a lot to understand, is one really good therapy or really good crisis intervention to listen to it or watch it would probably be really boring, right? You have to really understand there's a different pace and there's themes and there's lots of things happening. And I think when I when I think about really good therapy sessions that I've watched, if you don't know what you're paying attention to or what to look for, it's it can be really boring. But when you're in it, when you're a partner in it, it's, it's incredible. The other thing that it took me some time to get my mind around, it was really clear to me that Phone therapy, phone work was much more challenging than face-to-face work. But I had it wrong at first, and, and most people have it wrong. It's not because you can't see them. That's not the biggest deficit. In fact, if you're really good at phone work, you can hear their nonverbals. You hear what's going on in the background, their pauses, their breathing. You can really get a good sense of what's going on with them. The biggest challenge with phone work is that they can't see you. That's the huge information deficit. They don't appreciate or understand that that loss of that visual, how much they're losing. Most clinicians, most phone clinicians don't. There's so much we take for granted in face-to-face work that we do non-verbally as a clinician. Great example is if I'm talking to somebody and they're telling me a really important story, while they're talking, I'm giving them thousands and thousands of cues without interrupting them. My eyes leaning in, facial expression, the way that I'm breathing, the way that I'm positioned, I'm showing them care and attention non-verbally. On the phones, they can't see you. They don't know if you're looking at your computer screen, fiddling around with your phone, staring off into space. They can't see you. So that means that you've got to do other things to make sure that they know that you're there with them, but you don't want to interrupt their flow. So when we're doing talk therapy face-to-face, I can do a thousand things with my face, with my body, with my attitude to show that I'm connecting and I'm with them and it won't interrupt their flow. If you're a phone worker, you've got to figure out how to do those same things and not interrupt their conversation, not stop that stuff. Right, so you have to learn some tricks on how you do that. Sub vocalizations, really quite, yeah. L- little things that you do so that you have to use your voice to show you're with them without with them also recognizing that you're not trying to interrupt them, that you're just encouraging them. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so there's so much skills. There's many people. I haven't met anybody yet that was a good phone clinician didn't do amazing face-to-face. It doesn't work the other way. There are many face-to-face clinicians that simply cannot make the the leap to working on the phones mm-hmm. or crisis lines. In, in It's a much more specialized skill. That's why it's really infuriating. In many states, Missouri being one of them, they passed a law like 2008, I think it was. You can't count phone hours for your face-to-face hours. Yeah, let's talk about that. It's, that's in, it's utterly in, it's utterly insane. And I actually went before the, uh, the, the board... Um, and I understand that the problem with the board, and this is not the board's fault, it's a statute. 
And when I when I asked for an appeal to the, it was the licensed professional counselor board. They were really clear. It's somebody put this in the statute. I, I'm really curious who did it. This happened in the mid 2000s, and I'm really curious what group or organization. What agenda? Because some some money, some effort was behind this because it it popped up in about ten or fifteen states across the country, all around the same time, where you couldn't count phone hours towards your your therapy, your content hours, mm-hmm. and it's so backwards. You it takes so much more skill to do phone work than face to face work. <laughs> the fact that the, the this doesn't count it it's in it's infuriating. Now other professions, it, social work, it's fine. Psychology, it's fine. LPC, it wasn't fine. Really? Uh, it's, it's weird. And I think you're finding this with the, the schools and the internship hours that they count, as well as the licensure hours that are counted after you graduate, as you're trying to work towards your full license. Yeah. For your yeah, license. So for your hours for, but this is all licensure hours, post-graduation, pre-license. And so that was, that just absolutely blew my mind. Phone work and doing good phone work takes so much more training, so much more skill, so much more oversight. We listen to calls. We review so many cases. People on crisis lines get so much more supervision, oversight, and support than general uh, office clinicians. And how often do office clinicians have their, their cases recorded where a supervisor really sits down and, and, and listens to the whole thing with them? It's really unusual. So let me ask you this. There are call centers across the country. We think there's about 600 or 700 across the country. And they have different uh, staffing requirements, and I don't mean the, the numbers, I mean the education or the experience level. Uh, you'll see smaller centers in a, you know, a, a small, mid-sized rural county that will be almost entirely volunteers that staff it. Uh, you see this in, uh, in New Mexico with Agora, where almost their entire call center if not the entire call center, is uh, made up of student volunteers, right, that are answering the calls. But then you've got centers, larger centers, that will require master's degrees, or that comes down from the state level and says, you have to have a master's degree to, to answer this type of call. And so it's really hard to find consistency in the practice of answering phones. What do you think that is? And is a good helping listener, just a good helping listener, and, and how much does that whether it's lived experience or clinical experience, play into effectiveness? I think that's a, a really good question, Travis. And it, we have a, it's a hot mess, right? The reason it's a hot mess is because we haven't funded, organized, or created a crisis system in a meaningful way. And so what you see is there's a tremendous amount of variety be, because there's so many different funding mechanisms and, and ways that crisis lines got created and that's the real challenge. So it's not like with medicine or with nursing or even with paid for therapy where you've got all these standards, which there's good and bad about, but, but at least there's a structure and there's this kind of standard of care and there's this standard funding model across all the different states. Even though there's a little variation here and there, there's a structure to it. Crisis lines don't have any of that. There's literally no structure. We also, because we don't value, this is really important, we don't value crisis intervention, we don't value suicide prevention. We simply do not. At a national level, the amount of money that we spend on crisis intervention and suicide prevention, with some rare exceptions, is abysmal. It's it's shameful, really. So what we have is we had lots of folks that, at a local level, came up with solutions. And, and this is really incredible. Folks said that we need this. So they had to use um, uh, 
whatever means necessary to put together a crisis line. So you have volunteers with people using donations and scrabbling together one grain after another just to put together a 24-7 crisis line. There's some real challenges in that. One of the biggest things that's infuriating is that volunteers are not free. They're donating their labor. And so what we do, and this is really important because I love volunteer centers, but one of the challenges of volunteer centers is they don't account for the value that their volunteers are donating in the actual cost of delivering the service. Because in fact, if you're a volunteer center and 100% of your staff are volunteers and you're, uh, let's just say your budget's a million dollars a year. I'm just going to make up a number. The, the amount of money that you spend is a million dollars. If you're calculating your costs on that million dollars, you're jacking the whole thing up because actually your costs are probably more like $4 because you're probably getting 2 or $3 million in donated labor. labor. Yeah. And if you don't account for that cost, you make it look like it's cheaper to do this. And it's not cheaper to do this. The only reason it's cheaper is because these wonderful human beings are donating their time and not making you pay them. You've got to put a value to that. So this whole argument about... Uh, volunteers versus professionals. And uh, if you look, if you listen to Brian Mashara, um, he had a study that showed that volunteers were better than professional crisis when was line that? workers. When was that study? I want to say Mashara studies in the mid 2000s. Um, recently, Madeline Gould in evaluating the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, she did not replicate that. Um, and, and I think there's some important things. What, what Dr. Gould found was it wasn't so much about volunteer or professional status, paid or volunteer. It was about hours of experience. The more experience, the more hours of experience were associated with better outcomes, better compliance with procedures, those sorts of things. This can be harder for it can be harder for volunteers to get as many hours as a as a professional paid staff member because the volunteer is volunteering their time. They're doing all kinds of other yeah. things, right? So once a week, twice a week experience. Yeah. So I tend to I, I I think this gets really complicated because there's also been studies that look at not just crisis work but look at their therapy effectiveness and lay people versus licensed professionals, the data is not great in support of licensed professionals being better at helping people in therapy than just lay professionals. And does, but does that cause the, uh, the associations, the trade associations to double down on advocacy within their state to say, you really need this to do this? One iteration of the peer movement was in the 1970s after uh, or as Vietnam was ending or, you know, as veterans are starting to come back and these vet centers start to be developed. And they're largely run by veterans who were just in Vietnam helping other veterans who are struggling with what they just went through in Vietnam. I'm sure you and I know a lot of the, the same history about peer supports in general, but it, it seems like it kind of ebbs and flows with uh, um, lived experience is king, clinical experience and education is king. But uh, there, there are very few communities that have embraced the benefits of both. I know people in e either side of the extreme groups, and it seems like they just look very judgingly at the other side and say, you know, this is what's wrong with them versus maybe bringing in the best of both yeah. worlds and, I don't know, playing that to your advantage. I, I got harsh words for people on all sides. Um, <laughs> one, one, of, one of my on-brand points is insult everybody as often as possible. Uh, I think they all have good and bad aspects. Just because you've had lived experience in something does not mean 
that you have expertise in helping people that have been through that experience. There's some evidence that people with lived experience are less empathetic and understanding of folks going through that same thing, right? That's been replicated a few times. It's not just some random finding. We've seen that a few times. Just because you are licensed doesn't mean that you're good at what you do. Um, it does mean that you uh, checked all the boxes. Uh, it does demonstrate that you had the the means and the wherewithal to complete the degree and fill out the paperwork and jump through the hoop. So that does say something. Um, does that mean that you're a better clinician than someone that didn't jump through those hoops? Not necessarily. There's this really interesting phenomenon, and I love this. Uh, when I first noticed this, it blew my mind. When we have practicum students... We love our practicum students. They're amazing. And when the practicum students, the ones that we have are usually right before they graduate. It's the last thing they do before they get their degree, mm-hmm. right? And they're incredibly open and receptive to feedback and supervising them is a joy because they want to learn, right? They're so amazing. We often hire people right out of graduate school. They've just graduated. What's really interesting to me is the folks that have just graduated and have their degree are not that open to feedback, they aren't that interested in what you have to say. They really think they're experts already, and they're not. In fact, the experience difference between a practicum student who's about to graduate and somebody that has just graduated is really zero. But one group is really open and engaged, and the other group is really closed. But there's some interesting things we do on this. Once you have the degree, the person has the expectation, and they put on themselves that they're an expert. So they're too invested in the, I know what I'm doing, which makes it really difficult for them to get feedback, hear feedback, and recognize how much learning and growing they still need to do because we haven't made it okay for experts, once you have the degree, you're an expert, to be unfinished, to be in growth, to, to, be, uh, to, get, to, to learn these things. So that there's all of this pressure, and it makes it much more difficult to supervise people who've graduated versus people who are currently in graduate school. And it's this amazing phenomenon. So there's lots of things that get tied up into this. And one of the interesting things, I was just reading this book about, you know, the history of Homo sapiens and the scientific revolution and all this stuff. And one of the things the author pointed out was that the true impact of the scientific revolution wasn't one fact or one scientific phenomenon. It was that human beings actually said, oh, we don't understand everything. We don't know the answers to all these things. That, in fact, the secret of our progress has been actually saying, oh, we don't know how this works. Prior to the scientific revolution, everybody had a reason for why things worked. Well, this works this way because of this, and or somebody else said it works this way because of that. Everything was certainty. Everything was this works this way, even though it was all mostly wrong. Yeah. When we really started to grow and progress was when we said, oh, we don't understand any of this. And really, that's, the, that's um, when we talk about professionals versus volunteers, I think one of the advantage of volunteers is that volunteers come in with this perspective, I really don't exactly know what I'm doing, and I want to learn, and I, I'm really open, I want to be better at this, right? And their identity is not staked on being an expert. Their identity is on being helpful. So we remove a lot of the baggage, and we move, uh, remove a lot of the things that are detriments. And this is not, this is really important, this is not a dig on professionals or experts. It's really a dig on the culture and the expectations we have created around being an expert or a professional. Hmm. So I think that gets in, I think that's one of the things you see that gets in the professional helper's way is this, I'm an expert and I should know better when in fact, half the time you don't have a clue and it's okay to say, I don't have a clue. In fact, I encourage people when they're working with somebody to say, I'm really stumped here. I'm not exactly sure what to do. What do you think? That can actually be one of the most powerful things that you can do with somebody in a therapeutic sense to say, I'm really stuck too. Let's talk about that. Do you think our larger system has a hard time admitting those faults? 
or at least fixing them. Uh, you know, I, I've been to many conferences in the last five or 10 years where I hear things like, there's no defined measures for crisis services or, uh, you know, the system's broken. Uh, but the system's broken and, and adding a, a caveat that says, I don't know what to do about it. Or unfortunately, after 50 years of living, I'm still learning. Like those are two different things. You know, one is like a, a talking point that will get you invited to conferences year after year. The other one is a, a move of vulnerability to say, let's, let's have new problems. Let's not continue to say the same thing over and over again and act as if being resigned to a fact is is satisfying for anyone. Yeah. Well, the system isn't broken. Uh, the system is designed to do exactly <laughs> what it does. I, I think this is one of the, it, it's really, and you hit on it, it's really kind of vogue or, or um, it's cliche to say, oh, the system's broken. The system is most definitely not broken. The system works exactly the way the system is designed to work, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. Now we can talk about how it's designed to work. Here is how it's designed to work. It's designed to work in a way that we spend as little money as possible on providing behavioral health services, that we make people jump through as many hoops and we put as many barriers as we can because we have rationed behavioral health care. If you don't know this, listeners, when people talk about socialized medicine or universal health care and they say, well, care will be rationed, behavioral health care <laughs> in the United States of America is already severely rationed. If you have good insurance, you're looking at a three-month wait list to get into a psychiatrist. If you have no insurance, you may never get into a psychiatrist unless you go to a hospital. Well, how about, how about this paradigm? If you have private insurance, you might not have access to all the crisis services that are available in your community versus if you have Medicaid. That's that's a flip that a lot of people don't know about. Exactly, there are different services based on what kind of insurance you have, and you can be blocked out. Even you, even if you think you have better benefits, you might not have better benefits. And there's some cases when you actually might get better services if you don't have private insurance. That's not the case in the state that I live in, by and large, but but it, that might that might exist in other places. So we undervalue behavioral health so much. And one of the biggest challenges that we have is, and this gets into the economics of the situation, we don't fund people services. We don't fund talk time. In fact, the big entities that drive the funding model reimburse face-to-face time the least of all the services we provide. This is why your visits with your doctors are so short, folks, because your primary care physician doesn't make nearly as much as your cardiologist does, not because they're not equally important. They are. It's because we love to pay for tests. We love to pay for surgeries. We love to pay for pills. We don't like paying time spent with the patient. There's this advisory commission that sets the Medicare prices. And a lot of people don't know this, but there's this commission that sets the Medicare prices. All of our insurance prices are, are, are set by the Medicare standard or based on what's the Medicare price. There's a commission. It's a private commission, which is really interesting, <laughs> that reports to the government. On that commission, it's all specialists, one primary care doc and one psychiatrist. Now, ladies and gentlemen, who do you think gets re- reimbursed the most? Is it specialists or is it primary care and psychiatry? Well, the answer to that question is it's not primary care or psychiatry. The professions where we want people to spend face-to-face time with people. We don't want to pay for doctors to literally spend more time with their patients. But, oh, if you want an MRI, the insurance company will pay a, million, you know, a couple thousand dollars for an MRI. No questions asked. So uh, the funding mechanism is really set up in a way where the things that get reimbursed are things where lots of other people make money. 
So if the people who make MRI machines, they, they make money in the process. The lab technicians make money. The, all that stuff, drug tests, blood tests. There's all these different people where the money's getting passed along. And so lots of folks are making their uh, money, so to speak. Talk therapy, there's only one person making money in that process by and large, and it's the clinician. So we don't reinforce those things. So there's a whole system that's set up to move capital and resources to things that generate capital and resources for as many middlemen and as many third-party people as you possibly can. But dear Lord, don't give people money to talk to people. That, what? Who, what, what, are you, what are you saying, Bart? Pay, pay people to spend time talking to people? So this is one of the things that we have. We have a system that, that doesn't want to pay for talk time, for spending time with people. Um, and that's what you get. And that brings me to a question. I wonder if we're trying to scale something in behavioral health crisis care that is not scalable. Uh, when you think about the interventions that we provide, what we're doing essentially is we're, we're synthesizing relationships and connection. How much more time would it take for somebody to uh, spend six months with a person trying to resolve their depression versus giving them medication and just more or less trying to keep them out of crisis, not really focused on their long-term wellness? Uh, and, and I just I, I look at the system and I say, you talked about it, it's, it's designed for, what it, for the, the output that it gives. Well, what if behavioral health isn't scalable in the same way that, that even some aspects of primary care is? Then, you know, how, how should that change how we approach it? And maybe it is hella expensive to actually care for a person. Uh, and how ambitious is that for healthcare, county government, state government, federal government to uh, synthesize relationships or really focus on uh, psychological restoration or whatever term you want to call it to, to care, air quotes, care for people? That's a really important question. And I think the answer is incredibly complicated. Um, you know, Dr. April Foreman and Tony Wood, we go round and round on this issue because they really, this idea that, that technology that will have some scalable tech solution, right? That we're going to, we're going to, we're going to innovate and find this thing that, 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 that we can scale. And, and Dr. Foreman, um, April, who's incredible, talks about like, what if everybody right now that was at risk of suicide walked in to see a clinician? We, we wouldn't have enough clinicians. We <laughs> don't have enough clinicians to do this, right? But, but there are some points around this that I, I want to break this down because I do think it's scalable. I don't think it's scalable in the current structure and expectations we have of the workforce. So, so there is scalability. I think the current model that we have isn't particularly scalable, but I think the actual therapy, the talk component, the, the, the people time is scalable. Okay. Uh, the current structures aren't particularly scalable, and we can talk a little bit about why that is. Um, who the hell decided that a 50-minute therapy session was the way to do therapy? Where, where's the <laughs> Managed care. We, yeah, well, I, it started <laughs> before that, right? So even before managed care, it was kind of the, who, who decided that? Who decided that the hospital was the place to go, right? We spend a fortune on hospitalizing people, especially for suicide, and there's no evidence that that is in any way effective, and a lot of evidence suggests it could be harmful. So we have this really... The, the behavioral health system and the, the structure of it is really a late 19th century, 20th century model of care that nobody's adjusted. We don't do heart care like that anymore, right? We don't do almost any care like that, but we still have this really weird um, system around behavioral health. There's that, you know, you, you know about that, there's a city in uh, Belgium, I think, where historically people with severe mental illnesses, instead of being hospitalized, have been housed with families. Families volunteer. Yeah. 
And it works beautifully. Those folks, the suicide rate's almost nil among that population. The recovery rate's phenomenal, and they created the system where, where people take care of each other, right? And that's face-to-face time, right? So, so there's all kinds of different models out there. So there's lots of things that I like to point out about this. One, and this is probably going to, well, I'm just going to say it, um, providing good therapy, providing good helping behavior should be lucrative. People should get paid very good money to do it. You'll find that the things that were most successful, where our outcomes are most successful, are also areas where people are getting wealthy. Cancer doctors do pretty good, I hear. <laughs> Cancer rate's going down. So there, there's funding mechanisms. So, in fact, people should, in fact, we should put resources. People should have um, who are highly skilled, de- devoted, trained. They should make really good money, right? And you need lots of them. But you need to do other things, too. The idea that therapy has to happen face-to-face in an office, in a setting, is incredibly inefficient. There's nothing that says one 50-minute session once a week or every other week, seriously, is any better than what about three five-minute phone calls or 10-minute phone calls a week? Could those be effective? I don't know, but there's lots of ways that we could scale up and provide services to more people, highly effective services, I think, and not be sitting with them for 50 minutes in a session, right? It, it reminds me of a story that I read, uh, gosh, I want to say about 10 years ago, and it was a, about a cancer foundation that had gotten uh, some bad PR because of the administrative rates that they're, that they took out of their donations, okay? Um, and so they, they would run a lot of these uh, races, you know, they, they do, they'd have a marathon or they'd have a, a 25K, they do these all across the country, and they were seriously good at what they did and they raised a lot of money. And instead of that, whatever it is, 5%, 10%, 12% administrative rate that nonprofits typically take, Uh they were more like 20 or 25, but they were making, you know, way more money and getting closer to their mission of curing cancer or, or, you know, finding effective treatments than these other groups were. But the prevailing notion was, well, you can't spend that. You can't spend money to get good people, you know, you have to you have to get people who take on this commitment to a servant pauper's life, and they have you know they can only make eighty thousand instead of one hundred and sixty thousand or whatever you know whatever the rates were. And it stuck with me because I was because I I think as you're talking about this, what yeah why why is there there's stigma on being successful in behavioral health and helping people and people thinking that you're trying to turn a profit off of it when instead, like, why don't we pay for value? Why don't the best therapists make the most money? And, and, and this goes into some other deeper things that I feel as a, as a professional counselor about, you know, I, I think actually a mark of a good a good therapist wouldn't be a full caseload all the time, but it would be uh, discharges that are happening in, in the appropriate time instead of a lifelong uh, client. We have so many inconsistencies in the United States of America. Nobody begrudges a cancer doctor being wealthy, but a wealthy social worker? <gasps> You're a social worker. You should do it because you love it. <laughs> Why should you make money? You what? Helping poor people and you get wealthy? That's disgusting. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so we have some really weird puritanical notions about certain types of work and, and completely progressive and, and very capitalistic and, well, doctors go to school for a really long time and they're saving people's lives. And of course they should. Why, why, why shouldn't a cancer doctor make five or $600,000 a year? They, they earn it. Ooh. So, so, so you can, you can, uh, if you have a problem with that, you can kiss my ass um, because it's inconsistent and it's a challenge. In fact, secret, revealed on this show, you get what you pay for. If you peers, peer specialists should be paid really well. What peers do is incredibly value work. The yes. experience, the training, the dedication, peers should get paid really well. This should not be controversial, but it is. Um, and I'll point out how if you don't agree with that, then you're a hypocrite because there's all kinds of other professions where people make loads of money and you're not losing your crap about it. Yeah. That's a problem for me. So so there's lots of things around this that are really key. If you look at um, who works in mental health, you find that people are pushed and driven to mental health because they often have had their own family or personal crises. I think that's amazing. But we also don't encourage and we don't bring in lots of folks um, that we could bring in if we paid better. If people understood how poor reimburse, the, the reimbursement rate for education level for mental health is absolutely horrible. It's unacceptable. It's prohibitive. It, it is. It really is. So, so if you want better care, we need to pay for that care. The truth is that you can tell what a culture values by what they're willing to pay for. We'll pay lots of money for concert tickets. We'll pay lots of money for cars. We'll pay lots of money for cancer surgery and heart surgery. We don't want to pay for therapy. We don't want to pay for suicide prevention. Or we'll pay for a psychiatric hospital visit multiple times, but we won't pay for the aftercare phone call that's that would keep them out of the hospital or the home visits for two months. I mean, it's happening in pilots now, but by and large, we pay for... Um, what I sometimes refer to as the anti-death chamber, which is the psychiatric yep. hospital. And we care more that they didn't die. And that's what that's how all of our systems are built, risk management, uh, accreditation standards, than that they actually made a change or an, that they got the help that they needed. And keep in mind with that hospitalization, the reason that we're okay with paying for that hospitalization is look how many people benefit from the money that goes to the hospital. How many different employees is that fund? How many different tests get run? How many machines? How many, how many different vendors are involved in that process? So we're willing to pour money inefficiently and throw money at a system that isn't particularly effective and may be dangerous because it re it's, it's that cash is getting spread around to all kinds of folks, right? But to pay for a, a follow-up coordinator, if you really wanted to stop suicide rather than put them in the hospital, pay somebody to be with that person 24 hours a day. I guarantee you there's several things. I think if you had someone come to the hospital that was really thinking about suicide and they went to the hospital and you said, you know what? We don't want you to be here. How about we have Bob stay with you for the next couple of weeks? But you got to stay with Bob. Is that an agreement? I think a lot of people would jump at that, to be quite honest. I think it would be incredibly effective. Now, we could test this. Maybe it'd be disastrous. But I think take Bob home with you rather than being in the hospital sounds like an amazing approach. Yeah. And I know three guys right now that would take half the money that it costs to go psych inpatient. That would sit with them and probably be helpful. So I want to ask this, Bart. You, you're not only an informed citizen and a, and a concerned citizen, but you're also an active citizen in the sense that you're involved in organizations that are trying to address some of these these problems, whether it's a lack of standardization or it's a lack of, of integrating the best practices. Uh, so two that come to mind are the American Association of Suicidology. You'd sit on the board for that organization, correct? And then you're also a member and, and or past board member for the National National Association of Crisis Organization Directors. 
tell me why you're involved with with organizations like that, and are they able to have an impact on some of these issues that we've been addressing? Wonderful organizations. I started with NASCOD, the National Association of Crisis Organization Directors, in 2009, um, right after I got promoted to be a director at Behavioral Health Response, where, where I'm still at. And it was a lifesaver for me. Uh, crisis staff and crisis directors in particular are very isolated. There may not be another crisis director in your community. Yes. There might only be a handful in the state. And so we're incredibly, incredibly isolated um, professionals. And NASCOD was just such an incredible resource. And, and being able to connect with my fellow directors and kind of hear that, here's what's going on in my crisis center. That's going on with you too. Oh my God, that drives me crazy. Or here, we did this and this worked. I'll try that. The, this, the camaraderie Again, that tribe, right? So NASCAD was that that tribe for me. And I do think that NASCAD plays a really important role in, in, in emphasizing the importance of crisis centers, um, and in particular, the peer support um, and the professional development of directors, right? So that, that focus is a little more narrow. AAS, which is the oldest and most prestigious suicide prevention organization in the country, uh, I'm very honored to be a part of that efforts and crisis lines, crisis centers uh, were key in AS's development. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Edwin Steinman, who developed, uh, was one of the founding members of AS, also founded the first crisis center in the country um, in Los Angeles, which is now D.D. Hearst. So there's all this history there. And, and we currently, Becky Stoll is our, currently our crisis uh, division, uh, crisis services division director, and she's amazing. Um, and I know that you're heavily involved in that work as well. And so there's lots of work that we need to do to get national recognition for, A, the hard work that crisis centers do, the hard work we do in saving community monies. I think this is one of the things that people don't realize. Crisis centers save the community dollars. We keep people out of the hospital. Almost every single study you're going to find shows that crisis centers help keep people out of the hospital, improve outcomes. So we're saving people from very expensive, inefficient, and sometimes harmful care by answering phone calls and sending mobile outreaches. But we do this on shoestring budgets often, right? There are some exceptions to that. Um, But it's one of those things that we really need a more robust, systematized crisis system. In fact, nobody should go straight to the hospital. They should go to the crisis system first. Most crisis systems can divert 90-plus percent of people that would end up at a hospital. If you connect them with a competent crisis system, we can keep them out of the hospital and improve their outcomes. There's and, And also make sure that... Hospital beds are only used for people that absolutely have no option, and the only choice is for them to be at the hospital. In, in St. Louis right now, um, often bed space is really tight, and we, we do a lot of placement. So one of our functions is help people placed in, in uh, inpatient units when they need to be placed. And there's times when everything's locked up for days. There's no bed space. And people say, we need more bed space. And I say, we have plenty of bed space. <laughs> we don't have good crisis and urgent outpatient services. If we invested significant dollars in crisis services, intensive outpatient services, diversion resources, and good outpatient access, you would need all this bed space. You'd have plenty of bed space. There are some folks that truly do benefit from inpatient care. So unlike some crowd that say there's no reason anybody should be in the hospital. No, no, no. The ho- I've seen the hospital help people. The hospital helped me. Um, there are times when the hospital is necessary, but it's Probably, I would say, if you looked at who's in the hospital right now, I'm willing to bet that you, with good, good crisis, intensive outpatient diversion resources, and and outpatient care, you could cut that down by ninety percent easily, easily, without any challenge whatsoever. 
I think your, your point is important about the existence of the continuum and many communities don't have CIT trained officers or maybe their, their call center isn't well developed or a lot of, a lot of calls go to 911 and we've seen really amazing innovations and in programs like Jennifer Battles in Houston with the Harris Center where they've embedded one of their crisis call center workers into 911 uh, to, to their dispatch. But another problem is getting the community to believe that those services are important. So they might exist, but they also have to be utilized. And if every doctor is like, absolutely not, I'm not going to send that person there. Or, you know, every uh, uh, police and fire is like, nope, we're going, we go ER every time, or this is the only way we get paid. I've said that to some communities that I've worked in. It's like existence is not sufficient. You know, if your utilization of this program is only 30%, then you're still sending too many people to the hospital. You're sending too many people to the hospital. And the the biggest issue is how the dollars are controlled. If people have the option of going to the hospital and the hospital is getting paid for people being there, uh, it's very difficult to divert. Now, in some cases, depending on accessibility, it isn't. Um, But part of it is the hospitals are so ingrained and how many hospitals are in their location. So how close they are for police, that's a big issue, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So where you you see it be successful is when there's a top-down collaborative community effort that says, oh, no, you don't take these folks to the hospital anymore. And you, you see that in Arizona, right? So if you if you go to Phoenix, mm-hmm. if you go to Tucson, the, the, the community, the police, the hospitals, everybody got together and said, no, 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 you're not going to take these folks to the hospital anymore. They're going to go here first, right? So, But you've got to have some sort of centralized collaborative agreement because if you don't do that, it can be really hard, right? It, yeah. it, people are just used to it. So those are those are real challenges. So you've, you've got to have a systematic approach and you've got to have everybody on on board. If you, the other thing is capacity issue. If you only build one crisis stabilization unit for a metropolitan area of two or three million people, that's great. But how many people are you going to be able to divert in that one crisis unit? You can only hold so many people in that crisis yeah. unit. So capacity is an issue. It would be great is to, you, to take that money that's going to hospitals and say, guess what? We're taking this money. You can't use it for the hospitals anymore. You've got to have 10 uh, crisis stabilization units, and you can have 20 urgent care clinics, and they can't go to the hospital. You have to take them here. This is where people go. That's the kind of system change that requires some centralized planning, which can be really difficult to do, right? Where you see it happen is where there is a clear – where the funding mechanism is – clearly managed by a, a small number of folks, and you can give some clear directives. But when you're in uh, areas where the funding mechanisms are loose and there's lots of players, it can be really hard to get the kind of collaboration you need to improve the system. Everybody's got to agree to it, and, and it, doesn't take, it doesn't take many dissenters to throw the whole thing in the Right. Yeah. If you open up a bunch of urgent, uh, urgent mental health clinics and the police don't take them there, and, and right, the, what do you do? And you, you just said collaboration, but the crisis providers have to be treated as collaborators in the community and not treated as a symptom of, of the problems that they're experiencing. So if you add one crisis center in a metropolitan area like like St. Louis and it's got six beds and it should have 12 or 18 and it's it's always full and then the community partners are coming back and saying, you you guys are always turning away our clients. Yes. It's like, well, you didn't build this thing the right way. You know, it's all it's a it's a shame game that can happen with these providers where they're always part of of what's wrong instead of saying like you know actually we have a vested interest in you succeeding and so we're going to help
help to find solutions. We're going to treat you as if, hell, you're experts in here, and maybe we could learn a thing or two from you about what this system really needs and not not be like, God, look what you did. You know, this is why we don't have nice things, or this is why we don't have crisis centers, is because they're always, you know, and you become a part of this unfortunate narrative. Well, it's very, it's very much a case of uh, we're not going to give you any money, and we're going to complain that you don't have any money, right? <laughs> why don't you have any money? Well, I need money. Will you give me money? No, we're not going to give you any money. And why don't you have any money? So it's it's this it's really the the but this is fundamentally at the root is the the dollars are where the power is, and there are certain and there are certain things that drive that. So um, uh, police departments um, get money from all kinds of ways, but there's literally taxes and. There's popular support for for police and fire. People will pass increases for these things, right? Right. We don't do that with mental health. Now, you'll see Harris County in Houston does do that. They'll pass tax increases. You see California starting to do that. I'll also add, the one thing to be careful about is just because you throw money at a problem doesn't mean that it's efficient or you're getting good outcomes. There are states that spend tons of money, but, but it's decentralized and it isn't used really well and their outcomes are better, but but... You could do so much more with that money. So just necessarily throwing money into problems doesn't solve it. It's how you use that money and how you structure it. Uh, but crisis services are, are were the new kids on the block, even though we've been around for a long time. This idea that of, of being an integral, respected part of mm-hmm. service delivery were really new. And and you've got all of these established institutions, the hospitals, where, where the money, the medical industrial complex controls healthcare dollars, plain and simple. And if you're a part of that, that's one thing. But when you're outside of that, it's really difficult to break into it. I have just a couple more questions for you, Bart. Uh, first of all, I've, I was, I, I've seen you speak many times, and I, I really appreciate your storytelling abilities. And I'm wondering who you like to hear tell stories and, and, and you know, like who, who moves you? Like who will you sit down and listen to or look forward to, to seeing speak at a, at a conference or a talk? There are so many people that that I I, I love to listen to, and so um, the list is huge. So I I, I can't name everybody, um, but there are some folks like Ke- Kevin Hines. The first time I saw Kevin Hines speak, uh, I was at National Council in Las Vegas, and I want to say it was 2013. Uh, and I was presenting right after Kevin. So it was my first national council uh, presentation. I was really nervous about it, and I was like, I'll get a session and I'll see Kevin Hines speak. And I was not at that point, I'm a suicide attempt survivor, but at that point I was not out in the open. In fact, nobody knew. There was only a handful of people that knew I was a suicide attempt survivor at that point. And I saw Kevin Hines tell his story and I am bawling. His genuineness and the passion and the humanity of his story, everybody is just crying. We're all just bawling at this. And for me, the biggest thing about Kevin's courage in telling his story was I had never told my story out loud. I was afraid to. And to see Kevin risk everything and and to be so powerful and competent, right, and, and together and, and to share this fearlessly was so moving to me. Uh, and then I had to go present. So I still give him <laughs> grief about that because it was not easy walking away from that session. Then I got to go and present Impose to yourself, people. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, Kevin really stands out. Um, Craig Miller. Um, if, have you seen Craig Miller? Yes. The Craig Miller, uh, he just, there's a cadence and a poetry uh, 
um, uh, to to how he tells his story. That as soon as he starts speaking, I'm I'm just completely captured, right? I'm just I'm just every word. I'm just there. There there's just a moment there. Uh, David Covington is a, an amazing presenter, and when I first saw David Covington present, um, I was captivated. He had an amazing, amazing way of taking research and data and connecting it to our efforts and our stories. That was just phenomenal. An incredibly gifted presenter. Then I, I, David Covington. Uh, if people don't know this, suicide prevention is getting cool. And there were many years where the only, only person on national stage really pushing a, a really strong suicide prevention message that we can do this was David Covington. Hmm. Um, so those are folks that really stand out. Dr. April Foreman, I can watch April, uh, Dr. April Foreman present anytime. Um, being on stage with her while, while she's presenting, I, I kind of like my jaw drops. Um, hmm. She's an incredibly gifted presenter. So those are some folks that come cool. to mind. Um, cool. Yeah. I understand you have a dog. Is that right? I've got, we, we've got three dogs. Three dogs. And is one of them named Butter? There's a dog who's, uh, his, his name is Bentley. Okay. At some point I started calling him Butter. So he goes by Bentley. He goes by Butter. He goes by Bentley Butter. Those are all names that he goes by. Okay. And uh, I've heard that there's uh, maybe some ways that you talk to your dog or like uh, just a... Uh, maybe an ongoing narrative that you have with your dog. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share that with us. <laughs> <An> ongoing narrative. <laughs> so one of the things that happens, uh, so uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Living Works. And I'm a, uh, an assist um, training coach. So if you guys don't know about, about applied suicide intervention skills training, it's wonderful. Uh, full plug for Living Works and assist. One of the things we do is we kind of talk about uh, what's what keeps us safe from suicide. What's one of the things that we as trainers um, keep us going? What's our resource? Um, one of my resources is when I get home, there are these three Chihuahua mixes, uh, one Chihuahua Boston Terrier mix and two Chihuahua wiener dog mixes. Um, they're horrible dogs. I, <laughs> I don't know how to explain how ill-mannered, uh, untrainable, um, yappy, loud, bark at everything nonstop. Butter does this whisper cry thing when he doesn't get what he wants, and he will not stop. But, and I didn't want these dogs. Um, I didn't want the first dog, Rolo. Um, and my wife got the dog without permission. I live with Rolo. I, li- I love Rolo, and I-, I was fine with it. And then my daughter wanted another dog, and right before I went out of town, I said, no, you cannot have a dog. And I was actually at an assist tea for tea, and I came back, and there were two dogs, <laughs> Teddy and Butter. And uh, my daughter and wife's explanation was that I had made it clear that they couldn't have a dog, but that dogs, plural, had not been forbidden. Wow. Zero to two. Zero to two. Uh, so one of the things that happens uh, with these dogs that I didn't want and at, at times literally hate, um, despite loving them tremendously, is when I come home, um, they uh, collectively lose their crap and they will be on the bed and they will, they look like kernels of popcorn. They're like popping up and down all over each other and whining and barking at me. And until we make out, until we play kissy face, until they all get kisses and pets, they will not stop. And so they are so excited when I come home and they do this, this kind of pack, um, uh, pack litter mate behavior when I come home. Um, and they literally will bark and whine at me until we kiss and pet and I talk to them and then that takes about five minutes and they kind of settle down and they go about their lives and no matter how bad of a mood I'm in or how crappy my day was when they do that 
everything's off. The, I don't know what it is, but there's something about it that, okay, life may suck today, but yeah. that was kind of cool. Yeah. So glad we domesticated these things so many years ago. <laughs> I love those dogs. Yeah. <laughs> but they are, for the record, horrible. I mean, they're embarrassing. Uh, Bart, thank you for spending your time with us. This has been wonderful and we talked about a lot of things but also a lot of things we didn't get to talk about which uh means i hope i get to have you back again in the future to talk about more things thank you travis thank you for having me i appreciate all that you're doing and i'll come back on the show anytime you want that's dr bart andrews with behavioral health response in st louis to learn more about bhr visit bhrstl.org to learn about aas visit suicidology.org and to learn about NASCOD, visit nascod.org. See the very mean look he just gave me, so I'm pointing it out because well, it was pretty mean. What, what was that? Um, what was that? Uh, Rain Man quote, right? Where he's like, "Uh oh," and he's like beat and hit and hurt my arm in 1988 you remember that where he like he documents everything that ever happened to him and <laughs> you know tom, tom cruise like like pulls his arm and he goes ah, oh and then he goes and documents that was a good movie it was very that good movie made me cry did it oh yeah i i can't can't cry in my personal life at all but movies make me tv shows make me cry like a baby it's very weird i will admit that i need like a uh a stimulus or you know like what's that in like an experiment where you're like i think it's the stimulus where you're like hey this is the the controlled variable right like i need something to come in and like help me to uh access emotions sometimes mm-hmm. uh that i yeah for those I, of us just joining us travis is letting us know about his emotional blockage and how he needs basically viagra for tears yeah, it's like a, <laughs> it's like a emotional arterial no, buildup. Can't cry about my my own stuff ever, but uh, I, the Good Wife. I was in tears watching the Good Wife. What the Good Wife?